remember when I was a small child, yes, at one time in this existence, I was a small child. Now I'm just a big one. But when I was a small child, I can remember feeling, never feeling as safe as when I was with my dad. When I was a small child, I can remember the, the security, the, the safety that I would feel when I was standing right next to my dad. Um, what you need to know about my dad is, before a couple of back surgeries, he was six foot five. He was bigger than anyone in the room. And in my mind, there was simply no one smarter than my dad. There was no one stronger than my dad. And so at a moment's notice, if anything started to go sideways, I knew that, that my dad had this. That whatever the situation might be, my dad could handle whatever that situation that came up would be. There wasn't anything my dad could not do in my mind. My dad's hand is the biggest hand I think I've ever seen in my life. It, when he would thump you, it would give you a migraine for a week. It, he, he would shake other grown men's hand and have them walk away with their tail between their legs almost, right? My dad would just tower above any other man, and, and he, I still think of him that way today. And in fact, Craig, you'll enjoy this. One year at VBS growing up, uh, my dad was Goliath uh, for, for our church VBS. And unfortunately, that was the first night of VBS, and a lot of the kids didn't want to come back after that. He, he, he was so menacing as a, just a physical stature. That's how I felt about my dad. And I still do, in a lot of ways, feel about th that way about my dad today. Growing up, I even remember how there would be kids who you would enter into a conversation and they would be talking for some reason about whose dad could whoop the other dad. Have you ever had that, con you ever had that conversation? I don't know why kids think this conversation makes any sense, as if any time ever a bunch of dads are going to get into a an octagon and fight it out to the death. I mean... It makes no sense, but kids do that from time to time. They talk about whose dad could whoop whose dad. And every time I walked up into the conversation, everybody would just stop talking because they knew my dad could whoop them all. And so the conversation was over at that point. When it comes to tonight, when it comes to how I felt about my dad, I knew he would win that fight. He would handle that situation. He could step up in that moment and, and be what I needed him to be in whatever situation it might be. And growing up, there was no reason to fear when I was with my dad because I had my dad. And there was nothing anyone could say or do to make me scared in that moment. And it's with that thought... I. I want to go into our study tonight. We're in Romans chapter 8. We've reached the penultimate lesson in our series on Romans chapter 8. And it's been a wonderful series for me. I've, I've learned so much about Romans chapter 8 that I've never thought of before. And some of these lessons have really shaped or reshaped how I look at Romans chapter 8 in a way. I hope you feel the same way 
tonight. And after tonight, we only have one more lesson remaining in this study. It's been powerful to me, and I hope it is for you tonight as well as we continue on. Last week, Colton did an amazing job preaching Romans chapter 8 to us as a part of our series. He got up here and did an amazing job. He even got a little bit into what we're going to be talking about tonight. I just want to thank you for doing such a wonderful job, having the willingness to come up here and to preach. Uh, that's not an easy thing, and not every intern has done it. And I've been that intern, and I know it's not easy. And so I wanted to thank you for what you did last week. You did a wonderful job and brought so much energy into that lesson. Our study of Romans chapter 8 has brought us to verses 31 through 34. So go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Before we get into that text, though, you read verse 31, and what does the first phrase say? What then shall we say to these things? Well, if we were to just go blindly into Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 without talking a little bit about what Colton talked about last week, we would have no idea what Paul was talking about when he says these things. Because the these things that he's talking about is, is what Colton discussed last week. So if you'll bear with me, let's just talk a little bit, remind ourselves a little bit about what the these things Paul is talking about are. And to do that, we have to look back at verses 28 through 30. 28 through 30. Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What a powerful text going into our verses, our, our passage tonight, verses 31 through 34. Verses 28 through 30 set the stage for what we're going to be talking about tonight. What verses 28 through 30 talk about is, is Paul establishing the fact that, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, of those who called according to his purpose. I appreciate, Colton, how, how delicately you handled that passage. Because Paul isn't saying that everything is going to be sunshine and rainbows for Christians. He's saying that God is able to take a terrible situation and make it, wonderful and, and ultimately make it great in ways that we can't understand or ways that we can't fathom. Paul is also establishing in that text that, that God has foreknown us. He, he has known us since the foundation of the world. And the, and the text says that, that he has even predestined us, that he has called us, that he has justified us, that he has glorified us. Well, what who, who, who is the us that Paul is talking about? Is Paul talking about individual people? Well, that's where we get into the idea of predestination. I believe Paul is talking about the church. That God has predestined the church. That God has, has foreknown the church. That he has called the church to be who we are in this world. And so setting the stage for all of those wonderful things that God has done and how God has called us and justified us and glorified us and predestined us and all those different things that God does, 
that sets the stage for what we're going to see in our text tonight. It's because of that knowledge of verses 28 through 30, it's because of these powerful things that God does for the church and for us tonight that you're going to see in verse 31, Paul say, What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Wow. What shall we say to these things, these, this wonderful knowledge, this, this list of amazing things that God has done for his church? What, do we, what can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, for a very long time in my life, if someone were to ask me what my favorite verse was in all the Bible, for a very long time in my life, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 was that answer. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 was, was what I wrote uh, when I got in, in, uh, inducted into my uh, social club at Freed Harmon University. Write your name and write your favorite verse. And that was Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. It's such a powerful verse. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Now, since I, I've, I've gotten a new favorite verse, there's no reason to move on from the one I had. But tonight, this one rings so true to me. And I hope it does to you as well tonight. Paul says, if, if God is the one that is for us, then, then there is no one. Who can truly be against us? Sure, I mean, there's going to be opposition, right? There's going to be people who are in opposition to us, and there's going to be people who would like to see us fail. There's going to be people who are even wishing that we fail. But what Paul says is, in the grand scheme of things, these people are just a gnat compared to the greatness of who our God is. In the grand scheme of things, they are meaningless when compared to an almighty God. Paul's very clear in the book of Romans as a whole, but even within this chapter, that there is going to be suffering for Christians, right? We talked about it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. He talks about the suffering that we partake with Christ, right? And then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, we talked about how the suffering that Christians have to go through is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us, right? So there is no doubt, there's no question about it that but Romans 8 and verse 31 doesn't mean that there's not going to be any persecution, that there's not going to be any trials or tribulations. In fact, it's the very opposite. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 is recognizing the fact that there is suffering, there is persecution, there is opposition, and it doesn't matter because you have God. You have God on your side. And therefore, in the grand scheme of things, that persecution means nothing. Just like those sufferings in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 where he says these sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 
the opposition of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the greatness of the almighty God who is on our side. That's why he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Who can be against us if God is the one on our side? Is that not what we see all throughout the Old Testament? Is that not what we see all throughout the history of the Israelites, that when God was on their side, there was absolutely no one who could defeat them? When God was on their side, it, it, it didn't take long for God's people to, de to defeat those Midianites, did it? When God was on their side, it didn't take long for those, those Israelites to defeat those Philistines, did it? But what happened the moment God was not on their side? They couldn't do anything without him. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, it takes me back to that image of that dad holding his son's hand and the safety that that son has when he's standing next to his father. Maybe you didn't have the father that, that I was blessed to have and you can't relate to that picture, but imagine maybe an older brother or imagine an uncle or imagine a grandfather or imagine whoever that image was in your life that, that helped you feel secure. Imagine that tonight and, and that's the picture we get when we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. When you are that little bitty small child that's barely putting one foot in front of the other and you're standing next to that giant of a man or that giant of a person in your life, there's nothing that can happen to you, at least in your mind, right? But with God, it's, it's, it's even more than that. It's, it's, even, it's way larger of a picture than that for us to understand tonight. But that's what it means to be a child of God. It means you have a father that cannot be defeated. He is immune to every attack. He is invincible to any opposition. That's the God that is your father tonight if you are a child of God. Well, somebody hears that, and I'm sure there's maybe someone here tonight saying, I know God is powerful, but what does that have to do with me? Why would God lend his, his power to my situation? In what world would this almighty God care about what I'm going through and, and the struggle that I'm facing in my life and, and the opposition that I am facing each day? Why, why would God care about me? I, I'm just a blip on the radar to God. Why would God care and how could he care about what I'm going through and why would he want to fight my battles? Well, the text continues, doesn't it? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 32. Paul says, God has spared nothing from you. God has spared absolutely nothing from you. You individually. God has spared nothing from you. 
God, in fact, he has delivered up his only son for you. So what makes you think he wouldn't freely give you all the other things that you need in your life? That's what Paul is saying here in verse 32. He, he said, he spared nothing to you. He gave his only son to you. He didn't keep anything for himself. And that included his only begotten son. Paul says, why would God not continue giving to you the things that you needed if he was willing to do that? If he's willing to do that, he's willing to give you whatever else you need in your life too. That's why he says, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, he's saying, God is going to give us every single thing that we need. And, and maybe, maybe that's not clicking with you tonight. Because you sit there and you're thinking about all the things that you haven't been given by God. Or, or you're sitting and thinking about the situation that you're in in your life. And maybe this isn't clicking with you yet, but maybe we'll phrase it this way. Because I think we all hear about God giving us and delivering Jesus up for us. And we hear that and we hear that and we hear that and we know that. Maybe the message has become dull. Maybe we've forgotten, seriously, what that means. And so I want to take us through an image. In Matthew chapter 26, in Mark chapter 14, and in Luke chapter 22, in John chapter 17, where do we see Jesus? In all the Gospels, we see Jesus in the garden. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I want to paint a picture for you. The Son of God. The Alpha, the, the Omega, the, the, the beginning, the end, the, the Prince of Peace, the, the King of Kings, and, and this perfect Lamb of God finds himself flat on his face in the dirt, laying prostrate in the garden. The Son of God, the, the, the Lamb of God, ha, has found himself sweating with stress to the point of blood. Can you imagine him, him, him grasping the dirt and screaming and, and, and crying and begging God to deliver him from this situation? The only son of God, and, and here he is begging his father to deliver him. He's finally feeling the weight of humanity's sin on his shoulders. He's crying. He's begging. He's pleading that his father could take away this impending doom on his life. That's what we see in Mark chapter 14 and verse 36. The Bible says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And in this moment, God had a choice to make. 
You see, in that moment, God was hearing and listening, and, and all the angelic hosts were, were, were watching this situation and just waiting on the Father to give the word. We sing the song all the time. He could have called 10,000 angels. There they are, waiting on the word and waiting for God to say, I've had enough. And waiting on the Father to deliver the Son from, from this impending doom and this sacrifice on the cross. And, and there he is listening to his Son. And not only is this just any Son, this is, this is a Son who is spotless. A Son who is blameless. A, a, a Son who is blemishless. And that Son is begging for deliverance. What's amazing about that is that the father told him no so that he could tell you yes. What do you mean, Ben? The father told his son no so that he could tell you yes. What I mean by that is throughout the, all of history, all of mankind, humans have had a problem. And it's called sin. And the only answer to that problem was Jesus. And so for generations and generations, God the Father is looking down on mankind knowing that the only way we could be delivered was if he sent his son. And so for generations and, and thousands of years, people of God were crying out for deliverance. Deliver us from this sinful state. Crying out to God that, that he would give them back the relationship and be in communion with them. And so in that moment in the garden when God the Father had a choice, he chose you. He chose to deliver you instead of delivering his own son. And if that doesn't click with you tonight, nothing will. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up freely to us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, Paul says. You see, instead of delivering his son from the cross, he delivered up he delivered him up onto the cross for each of us. And if he can choose you in that moment, what makes you think he can't choose you in the moment that you find yourself in tonight? The text continues, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Tonight, is there anyone who has ever felt like you have done what was right in the sight of God, that, that you have been following the will of God, that, that you were doing everything the right way, and yet you kept getting put down for doing so? 
Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were the one standing for the truth? Where you were the one doing what was right and where you were the one that were trying to honor God in a situation? Yet in spite of all of those efforts, you were the one that was made out to be the bad guy. That hurts, doesn't it? It hurts to feel that way and to be in that situation. It doesn't feel good to do everything the right way and to do it for the right reasons just to, at the end of the day, be called the bad guy. Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Paul is saying, who in their right mind would think that they could ever bring a charge or an accusation against God's elect? You see, when you are, a, when you are on God's side, there's, there's nothing anyone can say or do to take that away from you. There is no charge, no accusation, no lie that someone could say about you that could ever stick or could ever stand because you're on God's side. There is no fabrication of the truth, no, no perception, no, no altered reality where, where if you are on God's side that you could possibly be the bad guy in someone's story. But yet time and time again we convince ourselves sometimes that the person who is on God's side is the bad guy. That the person who is doing what is right and standing up for what is right and saying what is right and being the great influence, that that guy is the bad guy. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, he says. If God has justified you, then who cares what someone has said about you? Who cares if someone has, has lied about you? Who cares if someone has tried to ruin your reputation? The truth of the matter is, you, Christians shouldn't care about what reputation people have of them as long as the Father looks at them and says, I will justify that one. In all likelihood, some of these people that, that do this, in all likelihood, they're insecure about their own faith. They're insecure about their own relationship with God, and so their only recourse is to take it out on those who have a good relationship with God. And in some way, that makes them feel better about their situation. In all likelihood, they are upset because they know how far away from God they actually are. And it may have nothing to do with you, it's just their own insecurity and their relationship with God. The text continues, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Brothers and sisters, when someone tries to condemn you for doing what is right, 
in the sight of God. How ridiculous is that? You know, sometimes we start to convince ourselves, you know what, maybe I am the problem. Maybe I am the problem. Maybe I am the issue. Maybe someone else could come in here and, and do a better job at this relationship than me. And, and we start to convince ourselves that somebody's coming in and standing a little bit less for the truth and being a little bit less vocal for what is right, that that's the right thing. Brothers and sisters, someone standing up for the truth and doing what is right is never wrong in the sight of God. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Someone coming into a situation and condemning someone who is doing the right thing that's like somebody on Wall Street, some businessman, some, some stuck up in a business suit every day doing all these trades. Craig, you're talking way over my head this morning about trading. I, I don't understand a thing about it. But let's just imagine somebody that is hitting on every one of those decisions and they're wearing a three-piece suit and they're, they're dressed to the nines and they're driving up in a Rolls Royce. That's like that guy going to a farmer in, in the south in Alabama and saying, hey, I've this is what you're doing wrong with your crop. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's stupid to say that somebody on Wall Street could come and tell my dad how to farm. But yet that's what sometimes we fall for when someone tells us, you're the one that's done wrong, when in actuality... They're the one that's done wrong, obviously. The Bible says, who is he who condemns? If, guess what? If, if, if you're not the one doing the justifying around here, then you have no business being the one who's condemning around here. Does that not make sense? God the Father is the one who goes around and justifies people, so therefore he's the one who does the condemning. Not one of us can condemn another. It's almost like Paul in this passage, he's saying, am I missing something here? Who is he who condemns? God is the one who justifies, he says. It is Christ who died, and it is Christ who is risen. It is Christ who is at the right hand of God. It is Christ who is making intercession for us. So who are you to try to condemn someone that Christ has already saved? Wow. Let's take it back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. We started it out with this many weeks ago. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is, thou, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Paul said it at the beginning and he's almost saying it right here at the end. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus verse 34 he says who is he who condemns tonight I don't know what kind of opposition you're facing in your life when you're trying to follow Christ I do know that you should be facing some 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
So I know you should be facing some persecution. You should be facing some opposition. But I don't know what kind of opposition you're facing tonight. And maybe there's someone here tonight who feels defeated. Not because you've done wrong. Most of the time we feel defeated, it's because we've done wrong. We have fallen short. We have sinned. We have trespassed the will of God. And, and maybe there's someone here tonight who has done none of that, but they still feel defeated because they have fulfilled the word of God. Maybe they feel persecuted because of righteousness' sake. Well, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, heaven's yours. The kingdom of heaven is for those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. If that's you tonight and you feel defeated just for the fact that you are trying to do what is right, let Romans 8 speak to you tonight. Let Romans 8, 31 through 34 speak to you tonight. And if that is you tonight, remember, if God is on your side, there is no one who can be against you. Remember that God did not spare his only son. And that means he won't spare whatever blessing you need from him now either. Remember that there is only God who can justify and who can condemn. Remember that no one can bring a charge or an accusation against you. If you have been justified by the God who reigns over all, through all, and in all. There is no one who can condemn you because Christ has died for you. He has risen for you. And he is interceding for you right now. There's only one question you've got to ask yourself tonight. Is he on your side? You know, we look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, and we may neglect something about it. We read Romans 8 and verse 31, and we may just take for granted the fact that God's on our side. But perhaps that might be the greatest if in all the Bible. There's a lot of good ones. There's probably one better, but tonight, there's not. The greatest if before us is if God is for us then no one can be against us. The question is, is God for you? Or is he against you? We may take that little word if for granted, but the tone of this lesson can change like that. If your if is not aligned with God. Because if God is not with you, then that means anyone can be against you. If God has not justified you, then anyone can bring a charge against you. If Jesus is not interceding for you, then anyone can come into your life and try to condemn you. There is no better night than tonight to try to fix the if in your story. 
There's no better night than tonight to, ha- to make the decision to, to be on God's side and, and to realize I have been on the wrong side all along. I thought I was doing right. I thought I was doing what God's will was, and I thought I was doing it out of a pure heart. Sounds like Saul of Tarsus to me. Who realized at the end of it, he was wrong. And just like that snap we had earlier, he decided to change and be on God's side. Maybe someone here tonight needs to make that change. Maybe someone here needs to to get on God's side for the first time and finally have the true security and the safety of knowing that there is a God. He is alive. In Him we live and we survive. If there's any way we can help you tonight, won't you come and together we stand and sing for your name.